Some composers obsess over minimizing their scores in exchange for the drama on screen. But Carter Burrell always leaves the moviegoer with a sense of time, place, and mood, especially in such films as the Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing, or Fargo, or even Todd Haynes' Carol. Burrell's cello, piano, and woodwind trigger emotional recall. You can't imagine his music in any other film than the one it's in. This year, Burrell works with Haynes for a fourth time on Wonderstruck, and we'll talk with him more about that on Crew Call. Before I ask you how you found film composing, let's talk about how you found music, because you said you, you had mentioned to me you, you, grew, up, you grew up in the South? Uh, no, actually, my family's from the South. I grew up in Connecticut, but my dad raised us in Connecticut telling us we were Virginians. So my sister and I, you know, uh, we believe we're from Virginia, even though, in fact, we, we grew up in Connecticut. And then what did you start? What was your first instru- instrument? Um, I guess I was given piano lessons, you know, when I was probably nine or ten. Hated it. Uh, dropped it as soon as I could. Uh, but then later on in high school, a friend started showing me how to do um, blues progression, you know, and, and the whole idea of improvising was that's what actually got me interested in music again. I, the idea of playing you know, Mozart minuets and, and such was not interesting. But, and to this day, I really don't like playing written music. Even if it's my written music, it doesn't interest me. Uh, it's really just the process of making things up um, is what interests me. But you know, that's, unfortunately, that's not a part of music education for some reason. You know, uh, I guess because it's too annoying for the teachers to hear you know, a room full of kids making things up. But, um, it turns out that that was what got me re-interested in music. Did you go to conservatory? Because I know sometimes, you know, it's different for each musician. Sometimes conservatories are confining, and, and, and sometimes staying away from them is more, is more liberating. Yeah, well, for, you know, I didn't go to conservatory, so I don't know how confining or not it would be, but it's true. I'm, I'm, not, a, um, I'm not a trained musician, and uh, I went to college, but I studied completely different stuff. And uh, but became interested again in music. I mean, I played piano all that time, just therapeutically, honestly. But uh, towards the end of college, became interested in the idea of being in a band. Uh, it was the era of punk rock, and um, some friends and I, we upon graduation, sort of said, "Let's just like wait before we go to grad school or anything. Let's just take a year and and go to New York and um, and play music." So we did that, and uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> The guitarist, his mother never, never uh, forgave me for, you know, like preventing him from going to Harvard Law School because he ended up like playing with me for a little while and then he ended up going off on his own career and now he's a writer-producer at Helmland. He ended up, you know, just deciding he wanted to be in creative work and he's he's amazing at what he does. Uh, But he was my, you know, roommate in college, Chip Johannesson, and he's... um, uh, he didn't go to law school until I think a couple of years ago. He decided he'd actually go to UCLA Law School so he could, you know, say he did it. But um, anyway, so uh, yeah, I ended up in a, you know playing in a band as an avocation. Um, uh, it was never something I thought was going to be a full-time profession. But uh, eventually, a friend of mine from the music scene, uh, Skip Leavesay, uh his day job was working as a sound editor for films. He he called me and said, you know, I'm working on this film. So, young guys like us, uh, it's their first film, would you be interested in doing music for it? So I went over and saw a couple of reels of, of Blood Simple, met Joel and Ethan Cohen, and um, went home. I had nothing to play for them because I had never obviously written music for a film, 
but I came up with some themes sort of quickly, brought them back to them a couple of days later, and uh, months down the road, they, uh, they hired me. And, and then from there, from there, it just, it just took off. Well, yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, they told me, oh, this movie will probably never come out. You know, it'll, uh, it'll be as though the whole thing never happened. But it, the movie did by a year later. It, be, it began to play at um, film festivals and played the New York Film Festival. And at that point, um, yeah, people take, are taking it seriously. Uh, and when uh, it comes out, other people start calling me and um, asking me to do films. And Joel and Ethan, of course, they, they get hired to do uh, Raising Arizona. And um, that's right, it keeps going. And it, you know, at the time, my day job was doing animation, which I really love. But frankly, writing music for movies is more fun. Uh, so I sort of shifted over into that. What was the biggest challenge for you? Because sometimes they say, you know, I, I, I remember like, in covering, in covering the, the, you know, composers in the score beat, we'll think of a pop artist and we'll say, oh, wow, that would be great if they did the, if they did the, uh, the score to such and such a film. And then, like, uh, like the head of music at a studio will remind, will remind us, well, no, wait a second, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain way to work as a composer with cues and knowing where music goes and, you can't just shoehorn in any <laughs> pop artist. So I'm I'm curious how how it came to you. Was it was it just all organic? You know, with with Joel, Joel and Ethan saying, you know, we need a suspense cue right here between, you know, the 45th minute and the and the 48th minute. Or well, you know, the great thing was that um, I didn't know what I was doing and they didn't know what they were doing. So it was it's sort of like figuring it out along the way. We didn't know how to synchronize a recording of music to to the picture. So we would, yeah, literally say, well, this is about a minute and a half long and, you know, write, do something like that. And I'd put a stopwatch on the piano or whatever and, and, and try to make it land at the right time. Um, uh, it was, yeah, just, you know, I think the fact that we didn't know what we were doing and particularly that I didn't know what I was doing uh, resulted in what's still one of my favorite um, scores and one of my favorite films. You know, I think that there's a naivete, a certain magic comes from that innocence, naivete, ignorance, however you want to, whatever word you want to use, that you can never recapture. And um, by Raising Arizona, we're starting to understand some of how, you know, how music is done for film, but still we're, you know, pretty naive. Um, and then by, I think, it was Miller, Miller's Crossing the next, at that point, yeah, we had to admit we're, um, you know, they wanted me to do an orchestral score, and now we're in serious territory. Now we're at a place where every, you know, every minute with orchestra costs a lot of money, and we have to be act like grown-ups now. Such a beautiful, such a beautiful score. Very Irish, very, <laughs> very Irish, and that's what's what's so wonderful about it. Um, and and then and and how it's timed with the with the with the fedora going through the woods, and I'll ne I'll never forget seeing. And then the kid taking. I, I remember the original trailer. 
verbatim. Right. Uh, and the kid grabbing the, <laughs> the, the toupee off of the dead guy <laughs> in the alley. And, um, jumping to Todd, how did you meet Todd? Uh, well, we met on um, Velvet Goldmine, and uh, you know, I, you know, Todd and Christine Vachon's producer reached out to me. I'm not sure what made them think of me. I mean, we're all New Yorkers, so there's that. I'm, you know, I'm conveniently located, um, and maybe it's that the the film's about pop music, and that was you know sort of a, a background of mine. But it's not like I was in any pop band that you've ever heard of. Um, so I'm not honestly certain um, why they came to me. Um, of course, they're also, you know, looking for someone who'll work for nothing, uh, which is, and those are the types of movies that I well, um, was doing, you know, that I, I still do because they're the types of music, they're movies that are interesting. Um, so I guess I fit a number of categories, but I, I don't know the real answer to why they, they came to me, um, but I'm glad they did. I remember you mentioning Todd's a visual stylist. And, and basically, like some composers will get the script well in advance, but when it comes to Todd, you have to see a rough cut. That's true, that's my feeling. Um, there's so many different ways to shoot a script, uh, but with certain uh, directors in particular, they're, you know, the look is almost more important than what's in the script, and Todd is, uh, is one of those people. So um, that's right, it'd be very hard for me to to start writing music without seeing the film. With this, with Wonderstruck, it's it's a uh, it's a composer's. It's got to be a composer's dream. How, ma- how many? <laughs> and I mean, because nightmare. Well, um, <laughs> because a maj- how many how many minutes of music did you record? And you know, for those who haven't seen it, a, a majority of the film, like at least fifty percent of it, maybe even more, is a silent movie. That's right. No, there's eighty minutes of music, and uh, and you're quite right. It's a uh, it's it's a wonderful opportunity for a composer, uh, but also like you know a, um, a gigantic responsibility because you're right. There's often nothing else happening in the sonic realm other than the score, um, and so you know it raises this question of you know I I can't actually stop. There's no you know I'm not allowed to stop the music because then you actually have literal silence. And it's not like in a normal film, when there's no music there and no one is speaking, you at least hear what they call room tone. You hear like this, the movement of air molecules in the room. But here, it's, it's literally technically silent. There isn't anything. Um, and so I can't really stop because you, there's something about that, that crystal black silence that is very jarring. I, I think I stop for three seconds at one point, but it's a very important point. It's this point where um, uh, uh, the deaf girl Rose has found Julianne Moore's character, and they they go into her dressing room, and there is like three seconds of silence. But and I it's remember the only silence um, in that whole um, black and white section of of the film because it is very jarring. So I'm not allowed to stop. So, um, but how if you really have music going all the time? One of the issues that comes up is it's it's a little overwhelming. It just becomes too much. So uh, figuring out how to solve that, how much to say, how much not to say, um, is, uh, was very key. And it, it really took a lot of trial and error to figure it out. Because also, you, you couldn't solve that problem by, writing, uh, by looking at a four-minute scene. The problem itself really only comes into view when you see all those scenes back to back and the music never pauses for 40 minutes. And you, when you get to the end, you say, oh my god, that was, 
So it's too much. <laughs> you wrote literally 40 minutes straight on paper? No, I would write actually scenes on paper. So, and they'd all seem fine on paper. And he, I, we'd w watch the scenes with Todd. He likes them. But when we had enough of them so that we could look at a whole 40-minute stretch of the film, which is well into the process of writing, you begin, all new problems would you know, suddenly become apparent, like the, just the problems of a silent film um, and the, the problems that every film presents of like the characters and the story. Um, that's one thing, but this film presented its own special problem that wasn't even apparent until uh, you know, most of the score had been written, which is you know, how, after all that music for all that stretch of time, uh, sometimes it was yeah, too much is the only word to put. It, wouldn't, it didn't have the same impact anymore that it had because like the last piece wouldn't have the same impact because of all the things that had come before it. And I'm used to, you previously asked, like, why is it different to write film score than pop music? Well, one of the differences that I had learned early on was you can't just think in three-minute chunks. And I was very comfortable when I started doing this thinking in three-minute chunks. But you have to be able to think of the arc of the whole film and have themes that develop and, 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 and interact with each other over the course of an entire film. And here, because it doesn't pause, it was this accumulated effect of uh, your ear getting tired or hearing too much of a melody. Um, and uh, you know, there are a variety of solutions. Uh, one solution that people often use these days is to um, use a, a minimalist idiom like Philip Glass where music is you know, churning but not saying too much. Um, and that often works well, but we're not in that idiom. That's not, that's not, what we, that's not this film. So um, figuring out how to, uh, how to do that, how to pull back, uh, you know, speak less of the melody so that you could finally speak it all like 30 minutes later was uh, an, honestly a process of trial and error. One of the things that um, I love about your music is we always know it's you. And, and I mean, what I mean by that is sometimes with a lot of these tentpole soundtracks, they're so, no disrespect to other composers, but you'll go through and you can't tell a Captain America from an Iron Man. I just can't. No disrespect. Uh, but what's wonderful is your woodwinds, your, um, uh, your big drums, the 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 oboe the this is your family <laughs> and and it's it's so beautiful and so warm and i know that's the great thing and i think that's a wonderful thing it's is because when i when i listen to wonderstruck i can i, I can hear you and i can hear your voice i know i know like there's a whole philosophy oh you shouldn't be able to the score should be married with the you know it should be under the film but it's beautiful because I could, you, you have a wonderful fabric, and I'm wondering if you could talk about your instruments uh, for a minute, for Wonderstruck and, and both for Three Billboards. Yeah, you're right that I, you know, I'm, um, I try not to look at the music as my music. It's a tautology, if I'm writing it, it's my music. As much as possible, I would like each film to be its own world. 
but you're right as a as a composer and a you know, human being there's going to be uh, certain qualities that that I, I bring to it um, and uh, you know, in this particular instance with Wonderstruck uh, one of the things that I my favorite um, you know instrumental aspect of this score actually is the percussion is the uh, marimba and um, allophone glockenspiel you know there was some um, I actually began writing this in the middle of the movie. It's a scene where the kids are uh, at the Museum of Natural History and um, the, the girl from 1927 and the kids from 1977 are all in the same place and even like looking at the same things and touching the same things. And I, I wrote that scene first and that was when it became clear to me that percussion was really gonna work nicely for them. instruments, they, a lot of them are instruments you'd find in a kindergarten classroom, you know, like wood blocks and triangle. And um, there's also some, there's, because of the glistening quality of the metal, you know, there's something that's, you know, a little magical, uh, that combined with the harp and the piano seemed to be the wonder part of Wonderstruck, you know, it seemed to work nicely. But later on, as, um, as I expanded that idea through the whole film, uh, there's another benefit, which was that um, the percussion instruments, just by their nature, sonically, um, they save me from having to worry about sentimentality. They're not sentimental. You can't write a sentimental, you know, marimba part, or I'm not, I'm not aware that you can. Um, and uh, that was great, too, because in this story, uh, it's a very emotional story about 12-year-olds. It'd be very easy to, um, to fall into that, but the kids, you know, they don't sentimentalize themselves. They act like grown-ups, and they're facing very grown-up situations. Uh, and um, the percussion actually saved me from having to really worry too much about that. That we weren't going to have to, you know, it wasn't going to get sentimental because, you know, that's a marimba, that's a glockenspiel. Uh, so anyway, that's. I feel like that gives the film a, a particular tone. It's, it doesn't play all the time, but it's a it's a, a tonality that's there from the beginning to the end that I'm they're very fond of, and I feel like, you know, creates a uh, a, a character for this film. Now, percussion. Let's talk about writing for Frances McDermott. Uh, in Far she had she had Marge back with Fargo, uh, and there were vi a very strong musical theme. For that movie and then again a very strong um, but in this case Western theme for right. three billboards I'm just curious how if you talk about just drawing from her power on the screen and <laughs> writing um, because the, again I percussion both in both themes like a big right. a big sense of it in both title themes well um, in three billboards 
there are you know, a, a lot of characters, but Fran is definitely the center one. All the other characters revolve around her, and uh, they're there because of their interactions with her. And um, I was having a little difficulty like getting my hands on, well, what exactly really is the theme of this film? So I did actually ask Martin at one point, uh, Martin McDonough, so what, if you had to say what this film is really about, what is it? And he said, well, it's, um, it's a woman who goes to war with the police. And so that's, I was hoping for something a little bit deeper, but you know, um, but at the same time, that was very helpful because um, the uh, the percussion is about the war path that she goes on. Uh, it's it's like the percussion is like this outfit she puts on. She dresses up in overalls and puts her hair up when she's going to war with the police. And then we see her in other scenes where she's a mom at home and um, uh, her hair is down, you know, but. The percussion is part of this outfit she puts on to um, to fight this battle that she feels she has to fight. It's the only way she can um, get through the, the the loss that she's had um, of her daughter. So um, that's the role of the percussion. It's it's her on the warpath, and I um, because I'm trying going for a sort of a folksy Americana feel. What I actually did was it's like clap, stomp, clap, stomp, kind of. A percussion, which is actually something you'd hear in a Baptist church, but um, but in this environment and with the guitar playing, it comes off as having a more martial quality. Uh, but it seems also like that could be a sound you would hear in Ebbing, Missouri. Now, um, in in when when you go to re- when you go to record the score, are you playing? Ever? I'm conducting. Um, no, I mean, I. I almost never play. I think I did a um, an HBO series called uh, Olive Kittredge a few years ago, and I played piano on that because for some reason I just felt the piano was so central, and I felt like I knew exactly how I wanted to do it. And I and uh, and it was a very small ensemble; they really didn't need a conductor, so I played piano on that. But uh, more typically, I'm conducting. So wow! So that was your third Francis McDermott. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not. And of course, yeah. she appears in many other Cohen's films in smaller parts. But that's right. Um, that that's right. My third. Um, and then, and I should mention, you know, um, Blood Simple, my first film, was her first film, and Joel and Ethan's first film. So we, in a way, we all did start at the same time, um, and uh, you know, we we crossed paths, you know, many times over the years. The. Um, it's goodbye, uh, Christopher Robin. What were your inspirations there? Uh, well, Simon and I spoke before he we went to shoot it. He gave me the script, and um, he suggested that I, you know, familiarize myself with some uh, the sort of English pastoral tradition. And um, I knew um, Vaughn Williams, Rafe Vaughn Williams, who would be certainly considered part of that. But I didn't know um, this other composer he mentioned, George Butterworth. So I did listen to his work. He didn't write that much because he, you know, in, he went off to fight in World War One. Did not come back, unlike A. A. Milne. Um, so it was, um, he was a promising composer, but um, not a fully, you know, he didn't have a whole career. But he did write this piece called Two English Idols," which was very helpful to me. It was the way that he handles the woodwinds and these sort of changes of pace, changes of color as though you were walking through the woods and you turn and you see, you know, a shaft of sunlight or something like that, um, was, uh, it was helpful to me.
seem to really capture uh, something about that world that um, Milne moves uh, when he leaves London, moves out to Sussex, uh, and ultimately you know, starts writing uh, the Winnie the Pooh stories. So um, that was definitely a helpful inspiration to me. And um, you know, the hardest thing, honestly, for me about a, a, a film like that is that uh, it's if you go from the visuals, it has this breezy, sunny quality to it that is um, it's challenging for me. I, you know, I, I can write breezy, sunny music if something horrible is happening on screen, but you know, to um, it, you know, I'm, you know, you, just type, you know the types of films I work on. It's easier for me if there's some darkness, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, that's brooding there. But of course, that's what the good thing about this is. There actually is this very dark element to the story. Okay, it's about uh, Christopher Robin and and Winnie the Pooh, but it's about it's a tragedy because uh, Winnie the Pooh becomes this burden that uh, the the boy can never shake. Um, so that darkness, the fact that there is this dark element, even if the music doesn't have to play it that much, that's what gave me the freedom as a composer to then play um, all of the light. Uh, um, and then tell us, tell us a little bit about the setup of your studio. Do you have, do you have a small staff? Do you, do you work on, do you, is there, do you like to work on one film every season? Because you have three, you have three films coming no, out no, this I year. Um, I have to laugh because my, my studio is a little room off of the kitchen um, that you could not fit two grown people into. It's like, you know, so no, I don't have a staff. It's like me and my six-year-old daughter coming in and out. But, you know, basically that's it. Um, that's my studio. And I have, you know, I used to live in New York City. I now live at the end of Long Island. And in New York City, I did have a, a nice studio and I have an assistant who, he still um, works there when I'm in the city. But I only go in the city to um, either have a meeting or to mix. We mix all my film scores in my studio there. When I'm writing, it's just me in a, in a little room off the kitchen. There's no other way to describe it. Um, I think I've had one director come, come there once and he had to like crawl up and curl up on the sofa so that there was room for him. It's, um, so that's, you know, I'm trying to build a studio that's a little more like a real studio with soundproofing and things like this, but um, I made the choice a few years ago to live in a beautiful place where it's almost impossible to build anything, and uh, that's, that's where I am. Um, so that's my physical environment. Um, I, I have a view of the ocean. It's very beautiful. Um, but I have, you know, but... It, the nature of the places that I can't, I, I can't have anyone else around. There's no room for them. Um, and in terms of the way I, you know, schedule things, you know, the main challenge is just to try to not have the films land on top of each other. You know, um, I don't have that much control, right? And a lot of times someone will come to me with a film that's happening at the same time as another film. And even though I'd like to do it, I have to say no, because I can't do that. And I don't, I, I know there are a lot of composers who can work with more like a team um, and it's a team effort and I've worked on some big films where you had to do that like um, the last couple of the Twilight movies were these gigantic things where the movie's constantly in flux and there's no way I can write all that music you know by myself and orchestrate it you know I just need people to help but I much prefer a hands-on thing I much prefer my ideal is something like Wonderstruck where I orchestrate it myself and I have the time to do it and make it more handmade, you know, that's what I like to do. Um, but 
that means that it does take some time. And um, so I try to, you know, make arrange the schedule so that they don't end up on top of each other. And this worked out. I guess I did um, three billboards, then Wonderstruck, then Goodbye Christopher Robin. Now, it just so happens the type of movies I work on, they come out in the fall. You know, um, you know, Three Billboards was completed a year ago, but they figure out which festivals they want to put it in and what have you, and then finally here it is coming out um, you know, in November. So it's not as though, even though they all come out at the same time, I'm not doing them at the same time. This, this is true when Carol came out. I think you know, we probably had like four or five movies coming out then, uh, but they had been done over the course of a year. It's just I work on the types of movies that come out in the fall, and it's just I'm a fall guy. Thank you for listening to the Crew Call Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe for this and all other Deadline podcasts in the Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.